Welcome to Open Table, everybody. It's good to see you all here again this week. Um, so this week we're continuing, again, our series called Signs. We're walking through the book of John together, and it's often called um, the book of signs because John focuses so much on Jesus' miracles during his public ministry, and he emphasizes, the, emphasizes them not just as miracles, but as signs of who Jesus is. They point to something deeper about what he's here to do, and so um, we've been looking at a few of those as we go, and we're going to look at another miracle tonight. Um, at the end of John, he blatantly says that he wrote about all of these miraculous signs so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing, we may have life in his name. So tonight we're going to talk about that idea of belief, uh, what that looks like. Um, so I have an older sister, and so in my household, sometimes believing was kind of a dangerous thing, um, particularly because Eden liked to play this game with herself where she would try and convince me of things that were just very not true. Um, and it worked more than I, like, care to admit. Um, she has, like the best poker face of anyone that I've ever seen. And I would just, you know, trust her, because she's my sister. Um, probably the worst time this happened, um, our town had a lot of mosquitoes in it. Um, and so in the summer, there would be these big trucks that would just like drive up and down every street spraying mosquito spray. So one night we were out and we saw the mosquito truck and Jesse was, or Eden was like, Jesse, do you know what mosquito spray is made out of? And I was like, I mean, some type of chemical, I don't know exactly. Um, and she was like, actually, it's vaporized mosquitoes. I was like, obviously not. That doesn't even make sense. And I don't remember what she said after that, but she convinced me that that was true. <laughs> um, and my rationale was that if somebody vaporized a person, and sprayed it at me, I wouldn't want to be in the general vicinity of that. So, yeah. She likes to hold that over me still to this day. Um, it was a bad, it was not my finest hour. Um, somebody's very excited about the, out there. It's good stuff happening. But anyway, belief. So John really focuses in on this idea of believing in his gospel. Um, it's arguably the largest theme that carries through the gospel. He uses the word believe 98 times throughout the book. In comparison, the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, plus all of Paul's writings combined, uh, the word believe is only used 88 times. So obviously, John is trying to tell us something. Um, he's trying to emphasize what it means to believe in Jesus and... Um, and so that's what, that's the question that, that this story tonight really tries to answer is what does believing in Jesus look like? What does that mean? And it answers that uh, through the story of an interaction of one man with Jesus. It was a really, it's a really radical interaction and it completely changes the way he views Jesus and how um, he views him in his own life. So let's turn together tonight uh, to John chapter 4, verse 43, and we'll uh, dive in. After two days, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. 
When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. So it's kind of uh, a weird opening. Uh, as you read verse 44, you kind of expect that Jesus is going to be rejected as he shows up in Galilee, right? Because it says a prophet is without honor in his own country as he is entering his own country. Uh, and then immediately after that, it says the Galileans welcomed him. So a little bit confusing. Um, but what I think John is trying to do here is set up uh, a little bit of foreshadowing for later on in the chapter um, He's saying that, yes, these people welcomed Jesus in one sense, but if we keep reading, we see that the welcome they gave him was not sufficient, and it was not the kind of welcome that he really desires from us. They had seen uh, signs that Jesus had performed in Jerusalem, probably saw him heal some sick and cast out demons, uh, but the problem is... Um, they were likely just excited about what those signs meant for them. Um, he was giving their hometown a name. Uh, they were becoming more, a little more famous, a little bit more popular. And also, uh, they were probably excited about, you know, the healings and the prophecies that could come and directly impact their own lives. So the welcome that they give him, it's, it's shallow and it's uh, conditional on what Jesus can do for them. So if we continue on in verse 46 here, it says, Once more he visited Cana and Galilee, where he turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. So Jesus is in Cana. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Bonnie talked about the miracle of turning water to wine. And so he's returning back to that same city. And there's a royal official who has a son uh, on death's door. And he comes to Jesus all the way from Capernaum. Uh, it's believed that this man was connected with the court of Herod Antipas. And so he's a very unlikely person to come to anyone for help. Uh, he was likely wealthy and powerful, the kind of man who, generally speaking, could snap his fingers uh, and get what he wanted. But in this moment, he sees that that power and that prestige um, are found lacking. He can't, he can't do what he needs to do. His son is dying, and his, his power means nothing. I imagine him pretty desperate, like the doctor has recently left his house and told him, you know, there's nothing we can do for your son anymore, um, and maybe telling him he only has a couple of days left to live. So then this man is told by someone um, about a guy named Jesus, a prophet who's been healing people in Jerusalem, and now he's, uh, he's about 20 miles away in Cana. And so this man, in his desperation, thinks, well, I can't bring my son to Jesus. Um, he's too sick, so maybe I'll go and I'll bring him back, and then he can heal my son. So uh, this, this walk all the way from Capernaum to Cana would have taken probably a day or a day and a half. It was uh, about 20 miles. But he's desperate, so of course he's going to go for his son. And so, in a sense... This guy does believe in Jesus. He believes in him as a miracle worker, um, as a healer. It's kind of like he's Miracle Max, 
you know, from the Princess Bride. Yeah, he's only mostly dead. Mostly dead is partially left. Um, it's a great film. Um, so Jesus is, is like that in this guy's mind. He's someone to go to in this time of greatest need, but not really anything more significant than that. And so he, uh, he comes to Jesus and he, he begs him to come back with him and heal his son. And then we get uh, Jesus' response. And it's kind of awkward. Um, in verse 48, Jesus says, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. In my mind, that's kind of like a cringy moment. Like this guy, it's already awkward to see somebody like that humbled, like begging someone else to come with them, that desperate. And then Jesus' response is, you know, unless you see signs and wonders, you're not going to believe. It feels harsh. Um, but what I think Jesus is doing a couple of things um, uh, in this response. First, he doesn't want to just heal this man's son physically. He wants to heal his son and his whole family spiritually. He's challenging this father to see beyond the magic and beyond the healing to who Jesus really is. And honestly, this state of desperation probably helps the process. He uses this moment um, because it also brings humility in this other man. He's a man who probably hasn't had to ask for much help ever in his life, but now he finds himself on his knees begging someone for help. And I mean, I found that in my own life when I'm in moments of, of pain or um, struggle, when my pride and my self-assurance are broken down a little bit, then I tend to be more open to God and more open to, to asking him for help and to letting him into my life. And so Jesus wants to use that and use this moment to go beyond the healing and to reach this man's soul. Second, I don't think what Jesus says here is a message just for this individual man. Uh, when he says you in verse 28, it's a plural you. Um, so he's speaking to the crowd and not to this, just this one guy. He's using the opportunity to teach the crowd what it really means to believe in him. And it's where we start, uh, where we see um, the, the reference in verse 44 and 45 play out, that the welcome of his hometown was not sufficient. It was conditional and it was shallow. Because the problem is when Jesus has to prove himself to us, uh, when we're demanding miraculous signs from him, that puts those who are demanding the signs in the seat of power and sets conditions on God instead of putting Jesus as the one in the seat of power. And that's, it's a backwards equation. It puts God at our mercy and at our demands instead of submitting ourselves to his mercy and his grace. It's an inverted form of Christianity where we're trying to get Jesus to follow us and be about our desires and our kingdom that we've constructed for ourselves instead of um, desiring to serve him and be about his kingdom. So if we turn back to verse 49, we'll see how uh, the official responds. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. 
Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus has said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. When Jesus tells this man to go, uh, that honestly might have been a harder test for him than when he calls him out and, and the crowd out for, um, for their shallow belief. Because everything that this man really knew about healing at the time, it required the healer to be physically present with the one they were healing. If we think even back to the Old Testament and the most like, radical, miraculous signs, um, even when Elijah raised um, a man from the dead, he had to be there physically and like laid out on top of him. Um, so that's sort of the, the pattern that this man is expecting. That's why he begs Jesus so much to come back home with him. Uh, but Jesus says, go. And you know, what he's really saying there is go and trust me. Believe that I can do this uh, in a way that you've never seen before. He's not doing this miracle on, and answering the prayer on the official's terms, uh, but he does it in a way that demonstrates the depth of his power and his grace. He asks the official to take a step out in faith and in real belief and to put his son's life in Jesus' hands. And the man uh, takes Jesus at his word. And in that moment, he begins to move from a mere intellectual belief in Jesus as a healer and a prophet to a more personal belief in Jesus. So he's not just believing about Jesus and what he can do, but instead he's believing in the person of Jesus. But I mean, even so, that, that walk back to Capernaum had to be like the most agonizing day, day and a half of his life. Like he's going back all by himself, just like trusting and hoping that when he gets home, his son's gonna be a little bit better. And uh, as Tim Keller says though, life-giving faith grows strong in the same place as gold, the furnace. Faith, true trust and belief in Jesus is often cemented in difficult circumstances when we're faced with that ugly truth that we can't do all of this by ourselves and we can't fix everything on our own. And even sometimes we pray and it feels like Jesus sends us off without performing the miracle and without answering the prayer, uh, with no evidence of his power, but um, we have to believe that he's working in another way that we can't recognize in the moment. But then, imagine how happy and how just incredible that man must have felt when his servants found him and told him, your son is better. That, and then when he realized that it happened at the exact moment when Jesus said, your son will live. I, like, that's, that's incredible. And we see that this encounter, it cemented uh, his belief in Jesus and his trust in him. It was enough to bring his entire household to faith in Jesus. 
and to believe in this man as more than simply a healer. They recognized the sign and they saw the glory and the grace of God. And the true faith that began when he started taking Jesus at his word is now consummated into a saving faith, one that trusts Jesus with his whole life. They realized that this man who met the physical need could meet their spiritual needs as well. So while this story is about a healing, and you know that's the sign, it's really about something bigger, about Jesus as Lord. It's the interpretation of the sign, and the belief in that leads to life change for an entire family. So that leaves us with the question of what does that belief look like, and how can we apply it to our own lives? We know that the welcome that uh, the Galileans gave Jesus when he first came was, was insufficient and conditional. And so how can we avoid that same kind of welcome? To answer that, uh, I want to look quickly at uh, a verse from the beginning of John, in chapter 1, verse 12. It says, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Uh, this verse does something interesting uh, linguistically. It puts receive and believe in parallel, um, like as synonyms. So what John's saying is that to truly believe in Jesus, it's not just about an intellectual belief, but it's about receiving someone, receiving a person. So while there is, there is a truth about who Jesus is and there's a truth that we have to believe, there's also... Uh, a person to receive. So faith in Jesus is incredibly relational. In the ancient Near East, the, the idea of receiving someone had three aspects to it. Uh, first, it meant welcome, so acknowledge the presence of the person, and that's what the Galileans did. Uh, then it meant to let them in. And so for us, I think that, you know, today in our faith, we we tend to do a pretty good job of those two. We acknowledge Jesus and we um, you know, let him into our life and um, he gives us the Holy Spirit and, and uh, enters in. But then the last aspect of receiving someone that was understood at this time, I think is one that, that maybe we sometimes miss, uh, but it's really crucial. It was the idea that you would rearrange your life and your schedule in order to serve your guests, act as their servant. So to believe and to receive Jesus has huge implications on our life and on uh, how we live. The idea of receiving Jesus and going back to your old life was just not possible uh, in the ancient world and in their understanding. It was understood that when you believe in Jesus, you reorient your life around him because it meant that along with the truth that he was preaching, uh, you were receiving him as a person. And so you can't separate those two ideas from each other, uh, belief and receiving. The Galileans believed that he could do miracles, but they weren't ready to rearrange their life and how they lived. So this sign really sets up a picture of two ways, I think, that, that we can view the Christian life. And so as... Um, as we're closing here, I really want you to sort of think about these two, these two ways um, 
and about your own faith and the way, you know, which, which side of this you would fall under. The first one is more of a, a cultural, culturally Christian understanding. Um, it's someone who would say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, um, but then you just kind of add him on to another area of life uh, to be managed. So it's like we have school and we have work and the future and money and Jesus, and they're all like different things in our life that we manage and uh, schedule out in our Google calendars, and then, but they don't really meld together that much. Jesus interacts with those other things when we need something. So when school's going really poorly, then we pray and we ask for some help, or when we're feeling sick, then we pray and we ask Jesus for healing. But outside of that, he doesn't really impact anything else. You might go to church, um, but, but it's a faith of convenience, really. Um, that's when we seek Jesus, what best fits us and our schedule and what we want. Uh, but there's not any real submission that's happening there. There's no reorganization of our life around him. And then there's the biblical view of the Christian life. And that's the idea that Jesus is now the king of our life. And he reigns supreme and has, holds the highest authority in our life. And so everything that we do filters through him and so when we think about our careers in the future and school and money and everything else in our life it all comes down through him and we look at it from the perspective of um of his divine authority and so we seek god in our decisions and we seek him in um in, you know, life changes and in how to steward our money well. You know, every aspect of our lives comes in contact with Christ uh, because he's at the center. And we've reorganized everything in our life to be about him. And that belief, it's one that goes beyond our circumstances. So when things are going really well, um, we, we don't just kind of move along in our own life, but we celebrate that with him and we seek to grow and know him more. And then when things are not going so great, um, it's not you know, a blind faith, but it's one that um, is honest with God about how we're doing and our frustrations and our pain, but it trusts that through all of that, he's still working. And so... Um, so as we close here, I just want to ask you, which of these views most reflects your life and your faith? How do you welcome Jesus into your life? Is it like the Galileans in a way that Jesus rejects and says is insufficient? Or have you reoriented your life around him so that every part of your life flows from him and, and is submitted to him. So, um, Beatrice, do we have any questions today? We do. Um, the first one is, what does belief look like when we don't feel the leading of the Spirit? What does belief look like when we don't feel the leading of the Spirit? Uh, yeah, so, yeah, there are definitely times in life when you, you know, might be praying and, like, asking God for, to speak to you or for a sign, and, and it might not be coming in the way that 
you want or expect or see it happening in other people's lives. Um, but I would, I would say, first of all, um, I mean, we believe that scripture is, is God-breathed and um, is a living word. And so my first advice would be to, to get into the word um, because God moves in those moments and moves in the things that we read and, and even the you know, things that were written down thousands of years ago. He can still speak to us today and speak into our lives. Um, and so, um, just because it might, he might not be like giving you a clear vision of something, um, that doesn't mean he's, he's going to be completely silent. Um, I would also lean on community in that time as well. Um, you know, I've been, and just, yeah, I guess like keep yourself open. Um, I've been in periods of my life where I've just felt like, things were not going well, and um, I didn't really feel like God was speaking to me or answering my prayers, um, but, you know, he would, he would send kind of, you know, he would send a friend at, like, the right moment um, with, like, a text of encouragement or, or um, you know, I would go to small group or just, like, talk to, to Bonnie or someone, and, um, and they would say the right thing, and I... I often like wouldn't necessarily attribute those moments to God because I was like wow I just have such great friends um but community is something that God gives us and the spirit of God can work through the other people in our lives um and to speak to us in those moments so. uh, this will be our last question how do you invite Jesus into all parts of our lives um if one part of our life is inherently secular, such as the workplace or a classroom where a separation between church and state is encouraged and accepted? Um, I mean, just because you're not, like, talking about Jesus all the time doesn't mean he's not there. <laughs> um, I think, you know, for me, I think the work workplace, like, is 100% and the, the classroom is 100% like a mission field. Um, it's a place like you might not be explicitly talking about faith, but the way that we live should be a testament to our faith. Um, and you know the the careers that we go into are often you know we choose them often because of the gifts that God has given us and and you know. For me, the job that I chose, there was like a discernment process where I prayed and I asked God, like, is this the right thing for me? Um, and, and you know, I mean, I might feel like, well, yeah, Jesse, you're a pastor, so obviously <laughs> there's God in that. But, um, but I think that, you know, there's so many ministry opportunities in like the secular workplace to just, there are people there who've never been like, loved in, like, a real Christ-like way and loved, like, known that they're loved unconditionally. Um, there are people in your classes that have never experienced that. And so to be, like, a friend to those people and to, you know, be someone who listens well, be someone who, um, who just speaks encouragement uh, instead of gossip and instead of condemnation on people and instead of competition. Those are, you know, kind of radical things in the world that we live in. 
and they're, they're ways that Christ will speak through you, um, even though you might not be explicitly like, have you heard about Jesus? So, that's my answer. All right. Uh, we're going to transition into a time of worship now. So I invite you to sit, stand, kneel, um, whatever uh, position you want to take to just uh, get in touch with the Holy Spirit and, um, and let him speak to you through worship tonight. So God, I thank you for... Um, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the persistence of your love, the way that you uh, you chase after us and you continue to stay with us even when we can't exactly see how that's happening in the moment. Um, God, I pray that you would just, your spirit would be in this room tonight, that we would feel your presence, that we would meet you uh, in a new way tonight, God. Thank you for how you're working in our lives right now. In your name we pray. Amen.